I think it's hard as a person who has grown up on TV, that is, grown up in a world where moving, talking pictures are normal, never knew a world where that wasn't normal. I think the hardest thing about being a Christian is learning to believe what the world really is. Because TV gets to cheat. It gets to tell you stories with pictures, and they can end it any way they want. The consequences don't actually have to really be there. They can say, this is what we'll do, and then it'll work because the story makes it work. And when we see these stories and listen to these stories over time, they're able to convince us that we live on a very different planet than we do. So the hardest thing about learning about Jesus is to remember that he's a human just like you, living in a time nothing like yours except just like yours. The only difference is you can't see how much the people around you are worshiping things the way you would have been able to tell then. Because it was bloodier and stickier and whatnot. It was gross. They made sacrifices. But it was also a wicked and terrible world filled with well, the rage of mankind and the wickedness of man's heart, which I submit to you we are unleashing upon ourselves as a society. We're watching it happen. 150 years ago, people tipped their hat when they walked by on the street. There was a reason, and that reason ultimately was the undergirth of Christianity that taught everyone influenced by British England, and, well, you can count the Roman Catholic Church, still does, teaches them to believe that humans are of value, that we are of something that God made and are of worth. And for that reason, we shouldn't just hurt each other or harm each other, but that's a new idea, too. It's new as Christianity interjects it into the Roman Empire and then comes down to us, we think of it as normal. But I would suggest that the more Christianity removes itself, or is removed, you pick which, from our society, the more you're going to see normal coming back, which is a little nerve-wracking when you remember what it was like before the influence of charity and grace on civilization. So one of the things I want to achieve today is to tell you a story that will help us remember such times and it is, it is a wallop of a story. It's going to take us quite a bit of time. And I can almost guarantee you I'll leave a very good part out that I'll have forgotten and wanted to say. And I'll maybe even make a historical error. Um, there's a lot I'm going to try to hold together for you. So please forgive me in the small tidbits and let's catch the narrative, the story. Um, it's one of the things I want to do. And this story is going to help us understand then what the palm branches are for. Why do we wave these things on Palm Sunday? Where does it come from? And I'll try to set up for you a little bit why that's even a question this morning. But I also want to give time this morning to Philippians chapter 2. This amazing text about Christ emptying himself and the idea of his humiliation in this. What does it mean that he is humiliated? And this, thankfully, will push us back to the Palm Sunday text where Matthew quotes Zechariah chapter 9 and talks about how Jesus is humble and having salvation. So we're, we're going to look at that too and try to get to the root of what it means to be humble. Because I, I hope I can convince you that being humble is one of the most important things you can try to do, but you can't be humble according to the normal modern definition of humility. 
Because if you try to become humble, if you try to make yourself feel like you're less than you really are, which is what it means now, like you can't do it. The moment you're like, I'm going to be more proud of thinking I'm less than I really am. I'm going to justify myself by becoming less and therefore be greater. It just devolves into collapsing. But if you understand humility as Jesus is going to show it today, what it really means, um, it's, no, it's nothing like that. There's no internal like, need to subject yourself to yourself or something. It is about subjecting yourself, though, and we'll try to get into that. So I guess there's three major things we're going to do today. And then I don't want to forget to tell you about the most important thing I learned this week, which is how Jesus would talk to you if he answered your prayers in a way other than sending me to talk to you. <laughs> Normally, he sends me to talk to you. You talk to me, and you say what's wrong, and I try to pray for you and then give you Bible verses and lead you to understand what his answer to all of us is. But forget that for a second, and just imagine that every time you prayed, he had an answer for you. He just said something to you. And I don't, I don't want you to imagine what the answers would be. They'd be what the Bible says. That's always, that's always what his answers are going to be. It's more, how would Jesus answer you? How would Jesus answer you? Uh, let's come back to that one maybe here at the end and, and close with that. All right, so that's a lot there we're going to try to dig into. I think the best place to start is with that Zechariah text. Oh, no, 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 no. Hold on here. Let me decide. Yeah, let's start there. We'll start with Matthew chapter 21. So it's really kind of weird what Jesus does. He's got these huge crowds around him. And Jerusalem is swelling as it does every year during the Passover. Think the Super Bowl comes to town and everybody fills up everything and there's stuff on the streets for everybody. So there's already big crowds there. And before he enters into this place where he's already told everyone, I'm going to die when I go in there. Uh, before he enters into this, he sends these apostles off to find some donkey's baby and bring it to him. And he rides it as he goes in. And the people are shouting. They're, they're waving these branches. Now, notice how Matthew tells us they're branches from trees. Notice how he doesn't mention palms. Only John mentions palms. So we know they were palm branches because John told us that. But they cut down these branches from trees, and they're waving them, and they're shouting this most amazing phrase, Hosanna to the Son of David. That is, Son of David, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, something from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a victory psalm. It's about the procession of a king into the city after defeating all his enemies and him acknowledging it was Jesus who did it for him. So he's going to go to the Temple Mount. He's going to make the sacrifices, a free will offering of rejoicing that his God has won his victories for him. And as he comes in, all the people whose enemies no longer can do wicked things to them say, Blessed is this king who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed by him in victory, blessed by him to offer these sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. This is David and this is Solomon. And now they're shouting it at Jesus. They're shouting it at Jesus and they're waving these palm branches. Now, so we got two things to chase here, the palm branches and the donkey. Let's start with the donkey. Um, most people, most church fathers, most Christians, will teach that the donkey is the sign of Jesus' humility. And they're right and they're wrong. They teach it in a completely wrong way. 
that somehow Jesus goes and gets this donkey to show how he is peaceful and unwilling to go do anything like mean, right? Like humility means don't be mean. But that requires you not understand anything about the history of horses and donkeys. So you have to back up and remember that when David was king, they didn't have horses in their warfare. They all used donkeys. And if you were rich, that's what you had was a donkey. And you would travel. There was one guy who had like 70 donkeys. It says that. He's a big deal. He had 70 donkeys. We're like, big deal. No, big deal. It's like an army. That's what that is. He had an army. So David, when he's traveling around, uses donkeys. And then you find a shift in the language. That in the end of his reign and towards Solomon's reign, where the texts are, 2 Samuel and 1 Kings, suddenly it doesn't talk about donkeys. It talks about mules. The colt, the foal of a donkey. So there's a shift that happens in the language that's used there. And then horse warfare comes in later with the Greeks, Alexander the Great, and all this kind of stuff, the Persians as well. Um, so once the, the captivity takes place, horses are a thing. But so what is a donkey and a colt the full of a donkey? It's not a sign of like, I'm not here to conquer you. It's actually the sign that I've already conquered you. The reason why there would arise the riding of a, a baby donkey being led by the mother donkey, by the king, is for him to show how powerful he is. Like, I got a brand new car this week. How are you doing? Yeah. Oh, let me give this one away every week to the poor. Maybe he did that. Sounds like a great idea. I don't know. But the idea that Solomon rode around on a baby donkey behind a mother donkey is pretty important to absorb. And then, in the course of history and the coming of the Romans and all this, of course, you ride a donkey, you look like an idiot. You get on a mule, you look like the thing we used to call the mule, right? Uh, and, and so here he is and all these crowds, and in fact, it does look humiliating, but it's not. He is claiming the throne. So you must be able to understand that Jesus is humble as he claims the throne. He grabs it. My throne, humble. How does he do that? He only does that when hu humility is not a feeling, Humility is the action you take when you own your place. When you own your place. It's amazing in our anti-authority culture that I would say a phrase like puts you in your place and we all would think that's a bad phrase, right? Like if someone puts you in your place, that's bad. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus does when he baptizes you. It's what he does when he forgives your sins. It's what he does when he feeds you with the Lord's Supper is he puts you in your place inside of him. When he calls you to repentance, he puts you in your place as a rebuke, right? These are not necessarily bad things, but you can see how much we hate authority on principle as a people. And that we don't like the idea of even having a place. Why would someone take a boy and make him a girl? Because we don't believe in places. We don't believe in things. We don't believe in reality anymore. We're living like the emperor without his clothes on. All that story, right? Trying to pretend the reality is what we see on TV rather than hear of the reality that we're given. And the reality that we're given long ago, a real man on a donkey surrounded by huge crowds in the midst of a gigantic empire that he had no business toppling. He enters into these shouts in order to topple it by doing, well, what his place was given to do, uh, to die and rise. It takes a couple hundred years for Rome as a city and as an area to convert to Christianity, but it does happen. The stone cast at the base of the mountain swells and becomes a new mountain itself. Sorry, the stone cast at the base, base of the statue. Statue falls, swells and becomes a new mountain. The old empires fall away and Christianity is there. 
What does it mean that now we live in a time when it looks like Christianity is falling away? Well, that's a different question, I think. It's worth, worth asking. But for today, Jesus is entering this city then, and he's making a claim with that donkey, with that little baby donkey that he's on the back of. No one's ever ridden this thing before. His claim is, I'm the son of David. I'm in the right place. I'm here to take the throne. And now the palm branches. Let's do that one. I'm going to grab a sip of water before we go. This is the most exciting part of the sermon for me. It's also the most nerve-wracking part because there's so many complex pieces to this thing. So let's start with why it doesn't make sense. So here you don't you have Matthew not talking about palms, right? Mark doesn't talk about palms. Luke doesn't talk about palms, but John does. And then John talks about palms another time. In the book of Revelation, chapter 7, after he hears about the church and sees them being like at war, I shouldn't say hears, he sees the church at war. He sees the church marshaled against her enemies. There's 144,000 of us, and it's all this symbolism of our, our trial and tribulation. But then he sees them, and when he sees them, excuse me, that's correct. When he sees them, he sees them dressed in white robes with palm branches in their hand. And there's a beautiful song that is sung there, and you might remember that you know, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb, and he wipes away every tear from their eye, all that beautiful stuff. But again, there's just these palm branches are just there. So, okay, that must mean something, right? John and them, they're all, they're all using these palms. So you go, you do your Old Testament study. And you can do this in English. Go get a thing called a concordance. You know, it's, it's, it's not as reliable as you'd like, but you can go look up palms in the back. It'll show you all the places where you can go find palms in the Old Testament. It's not that many. There's a couple in the latter prophets where effectively they're like, you who are about to be destroyed will be like palms being on fire. That's all it says, right? So when you're destroyed, you're going to be like burning palm branches. That's probably not the reference point we're supposed to pick up on. Rather, there's the only other place palms are mentioned. And this is in the later portions of Leviticus in a section dealing with one of the three major festivals of the Old Testament church here called the Feast of Booths or tabernacles, or sevens, um, or weeks. It could be called all those things. But with it always comes the Feast of Atonement. The Feast of Atonement is when they take the scapegoat, they put all the sins of the people on the scapegoat, including the priests, and they send him off into the wilderness to die. And then they make another sacrifice right there, and the high priest himself and all the people are atoned once and for all for that year. And they got to do it every year. All right. At that, you're supposed to wave palms. There's a time when you enter in together as a people and there's palm branch waving that God declares. Got to do it, okay? Okay, so that festival, the Feast of Booths, this is in late summer, early fall. It's a harvest festival. The purpose of it, by the way, is to remember their time after the Exodus, specifically wandering in the wilderness. Hence the booths and tents, probably made of palm branches at times, that would remind them of the 40 years where God led them before he gave them this land. So, again, that takes place in the fall. There's another one in midsummer connected to Pentecost. And then there's the one in the spring called Passover. You know this one, right? Where there's the lamb that's offered as the memory of God striking down the firstborn of Egypt and bringing them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. So all of these stories, these events, these parties are there to help them remember the past. Kind of like Christmas and Pentecost and Easter are here to help us remember the fulfillment of these things in Christ. Okay, so palm branches for atonement in the fall, but
but Jesus is entering for the feast of Passover in the spring, and there's palm branches there. Again, that doesn't make sense. And to have it really start to make sense, you have to do something that many Lutherans in America are unprepared to do. And that is read the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha. Sometimes called the intertestamental period. Sometimes referred to as that part of the Catholic Bible that we don't have. You ever, ever heard it said that way? Um, that's not really true. The only reason that Lutherans don't have the Apocrypha in their Bibles is because we buy Bibles published by the Calvinists who took it out. But the Roman Catholics who kept it in, well, that's what the Lutherans did too with the German version that we only lost, what, 75 years ago. They stopped using that 80 years ago. We just went to English barely now. And so you can buy a Lutheran LCMS stamped Apocrypha from CPH. It's quite nice, and I used it as a reference point for a lot of this. What is it, though? This is important. It's not the Old Testament, and it's not the New Testament. They are documents written by the Christians who lived between the last prophet and Jesus. And those Christians said a lot of things that were true. They said things that were said before, and they repeated them, and they remained a confession of truth throughout that time. And the history that they wrote down, we know that much of it is also true. We know that some of it is a little biased and shaded to their side of viewing things because we have other documents from those who they're going to fight against during this time period. But again, by and large, it's a reliable resource. It's not an easy read. But again, I'm going to try to give you the most direct story from it, which is how the history moves from the last prophets and the rebuilding of the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah up to Jesus' day. All right? So, so buckle in, take a sip of your water if you need to. After Daniel becomes an old man and sees uh, King Cyrus of Persia come to sit upon the throne that used to belong to Babylon, he sees the golden head of the statue turn into the silver body. And all the beast visions connect to this too. But after that happens, the cupbearer of Cyrus, who I believe is Nehemiah, uh, convinces Cyrus to send the people of Israel, some of them, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. Nehemiah and Ezra are the two books that detail this most specifically. However, Haggai and Zechariah also prophesied during this time period, and their prophecies are largely initially convincing the people to finish the work. Because after they got back and started to build, they had some trouble and they wanted to quit. So the word of the Lord came to them and said, don't finish. And they end up completing that temple there's a big celebration. It's sanctified. It's officially got the sacramental system back, minus one thing, the Ark of the Covenant never came back. But it's all going like it should be. And things seem kind of fine. They're in a bit of a corner. But a generation and a half later, something unexpected happens to the entire world. That something which is unexpected should have been a guy named Philip. Philip of Macedon who had united all of Greece, formed the, uh, what is the Corinthian League, and was preparing to assault Persia and take it down once and for all, ushering in the age of Greece. Uh, Philip dies, uh, maybe poisoned, maybe by his son, maybe not. His wife could be. It was a rough life back then. His son, his name's Alexander. Alexander benefits from Philip's death. He takes the reins of the army and he conquers the whole world. He gets down to Egypt, all the way around, down to Egypt, the whole thing. Persia, everything is his. He's like 24, 25, drinks a lot, 
drinks a lot, and he dies. He dies. And no one's quite ready for that at all, but they know it's coming uh, in that it, he's sick on his bed and his, his chief generals go into him. You may have heard me tell this story before. Uh, you know, everyone wants to know, you just conquered the world, so which of us are going to be in charge? you got to set it up. So we figure out who rules after this. You know, to who do you pass the baton, Alex? And, and the, the story goes, he says, to the strongest. And there was a war after that. Yeah, uh, Four of them kind of emerge holding territory. Two of those territories are very small and not really important to history. Two of them are the, the gems and the key. One is Egypt and one is Persia, Mesopotamia. When I say Persia, Mesopotamia, think as far east as India right, and as far west as Jerusalem. This is a huge bit of the spice trade and all that kind of stuff. So that's the Seleucids, kind of a hard name to remember. The Seleucids get Persia. And then the Ptolemies, you might remember that from high school, the Ptolemies get Egypt. The reason you might remember the Ptolemies is like, I don't know, seven or eight generations down, there's a Cleopatra born to the Ptolemies. And you might remember that. So they get Egypt and they're at odds. And this goes on for hundreds of years where they just have these two empires that are effectively Hellenization, the Alexander the Great Greek world, only ruled by a different corners of it. And in Jerusalem, they are underneath this group called the Seleucids, that Persian group. And things are fine until one of them starts to have a lot of success. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. We'll just call him Antiochus for this morning. Emperor Antiochus believes that he is the manifestation of God and all people should worship him. And he seems to have every reason to think this since he wins all his wars and defeats all his enemies. And so who's going to tell him no? Well, uh, the Jews. The Jews try. They don't want to do the things he wants to do. He would like to convert the temple in Jerusalem to be a temple with an altar designated for him. And they say no. And there are some things which ensue, including the complete takeover of the temple, the expulsion of all the priesthood from the temple, and the sacrificing of probably pigs on the temple altar uh, in his name, Antiochus's name, thus profaning the temple entirely. This happened sometime around December of, I think it's 145 AD, somewhere in there. Okay. Um, and as that happens, as the temple is taken by this guy and he's having people make sacrifices to himself on it, and then he goes off to fight other wars in the rest of his empire, he's trying to conquer Egypt. Uh, as that happens, uh, all these things that the Jews have been trying to put back, and they finally get the temple back to have Passover and the Feast of Weeks and all this, that's all off again. And they will go for two years, I think without having any of these proper festivals. That's like not going to church for two years, no Lord's Supper for two years, only you live in a place where God says, if you don't do it, you're going to hell immediately. <laughs> the Old Testament was rougher, right? Like you got to stay in, you don't want to get out kind of thing. I mean, it's true for us now too. Maybe we just don't take it seriously enough today. But, okay, so all of it is stopped. Further, uh, when the Hebrews are not wanting to do these things, they continue to refuse to participate. Antiochus institutes some pretty severe laws. Now I know America, United States, the world, Illinois, we've had some interesting laws in the last couple of years. You may like them or not like them. If you consider these last couple of years, though, to be persecution, you got another thing coming. So I'm going to tell you. I don't want to tell you. I can't believe I read this. I can't believe human people did this. But because they wanted them to stop being Jews, they forbid circumcision. Okay, that doesn't sound so bad. But if you circumcised your baby and they found out, they killed the babies, 
and they hung the baby around the mother's neck and did not allow you to take the baby off while the baby deteriorated around your neck. That's persecution. Yeah? That's persecution. Now, I'm not saying there aren't things that you should resist in your life. But I am saying none of us have any clue what that's like, right? None of us have been through that. None of us are traumatized that deeply. Now, what happens next then is fascinating because they kind of do what they're not supposed to do. And yet God would apparently bless them through it. They make some claims in the Apocrypha that they're only doing what the Torah tells them to do. And I can see where that argument comes from too. But the biggest issue is going to be when God says he's going to do something, is it up to you to make it happen or not? That's the real issue. Especially if it means lifting your hand to shed blood. There's a time and a place for being soldiers. There's a time and a place when the city must defend itself. There's a time and a place when you must rise up to defend yourself from a threatening city. But shedding blood is something to be wary of, especially when you are the high priest of the people of Israel, which is what I believe the man Mattathias, son of uh, grandson of Edo, was doing in that year then, that inter intervening year and a half, when, because he's high priest, the Greek soldiers, the Greek authorities, they bring him out to an altar and they try to convince him that all of this suffering can go away. All of these restrictions can be stopped. We'll stop killing your children if you'll just offer incense to Antiochus on this altar. You can imagine the crowd they've gathered around. This, they, they think this is going to happen. It's just it's easy. You guys just play along nice and you can still have your religion. Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, sounds familiar, honestly, is the approach of the elite to the, to the commoners. But he won't do it. And they were ready for this too. So they have someone else who's close enough in relative uh, station who can serve in the high priestly office who they bring out. And he's all prepared and ready to go up and do it. In fact, he goes up to the altar. He begins to do the action. And at this point, Mattathias snaps. He snaps. He runs screaming at the guy and he murders him on the altar. That was not what Leviticus said to do. No. But the crowd liked it, and so they all surround all the Greeks that are there and kill them all. And they begin to gather other men who come in who are also sick and tired of this. They're going to do something about it. And they amass, they amass a group. And again, uh, Antiochus himself is now away. He's got a problem on his eastern border, and he's trying to conquer his western border. That's not how you play risk, but it's how he was playing. And he, I love this story. So I just can't not tell it. He's all prepared to go back and take Egypt. This is like a second time. He's like really going to do it this time. Oh, my ice cube. Um, he's got the whole weight of the Persian empire, you know, uh, bearing down on Egypt. And really, he's got the strength to take it this time. The Ptolemies have gotten weaker. But he meets a single envoy on the road to Egypt. They're not even to Egypt yet. And this envoy looks different. He's, he's a foreigner. He's from far away. He's got some like brass metal breastplate and this long flowing crimson robe though. He says, I'm from Rome. I represent the Senate. And if you attack Egypt, you're at war with Rome. And uh, Antiochus, I mean, this is the guy who thinks he's God, right? He's like, I will, def I will confer with my council and I will give you an answer. And the, the Roman representative, I can't remember his name, you can find it, he takes out his gladius and he draws a circle. He walks around Antiochus, he draws a circle around him and then stands back and says, 
I would like your answer before you leave the circle. And Antiochus just turned around and left. Took the whole army and went home. He could have killed these guys, but he knew who Rome was. And Rome was already becoming America, right? The policemen of the world will make safe for democracy why we tell you what to do. And, you know, it's not a new lie. It's an old lie. It's not a bad lie. The roads worked. The mail system probably worked. If they had it, they had it. I mean, you know, so, so it wasn't like that was bad. But Antiochus now, the problem is he gets his face kind of pushed back into the center of these areas. And he can focus his attention on the rebellion in his own area. At this time, though, Mattathias has drawn a significant group of people to follow him, armed men. But he's also going to die because he's quite old. Now, we don't, I don't know exactly, but imagine this 85-year-old man who killed some guy on an altar and now has his sons leading an army, and he's kind of like can't quite make it anymore. They're up in the hills and stuff. And he's getting ready to die, and he calls his sons to him. He's got five of them, three whose names I can remember, so you should too. Uh, Judas and Jonathan and Simon. Judas, Jonathan, and Simon. He calls them all together, and I forget which one is the oldest. He says, you know, you're very wise. You've been a great son, but we all know who Judas is. Now, Judas is a good name at this point in time. We think of Judas as the betrayer, right? But this is like Judah, son of Jacob, one of the patriarchal names from which Judea gets its name, right? So Judas is a good name. But he says, Judas, we've never called you Judas. We named you Judas. But we have a better name we named you after this. We call you Maccabeus. And rightly so. Maccabeus means the hammer. The hammer. So you, my oldest son, you've been a good son, but we all know the hammer you were born for this day. He dies and Judah begins to lead the army. And indeed, the first set of Greeks who come at him, he takes them out. He does a bunch of guerrilla warfare, gives them a great deal of trouble, takes back Jerusalem. And that's kind of key. Remember, uh, Antiochus is a bit away, but he takes back Jerusalem and they are able to the day to reinstitute the sacrifices on the day of profanation. That is, on the day of the abomination of desolation, when the, the temple was profaned with the pig's blood and stuff. They were able to get all the stones out. They were to get all the weeds and, and leftovers and destruction that had been into it cleaned up. And they were able to do the Feast of Atonement and the Feast of Booths, that, that palm branch waving feast to re-atone for, to re-holify the temple on the day it was made unholy. I believe it's two years later. Forgive me if it's one, but I believe it's two years later. Doing that is where we get Hanukkah. Have you heard of Hanukkah? Yeah? Hanukkah is when they celebrate Judas taking the temple back. Okay? Judas dies in war, loses, they lose everything, it all goes away again. Would you believe it? Jonathan and Simon are still alive. They're with a small group of men. I don't know what the size is, a couple hundred. They're living on scraps, trying to stay out of the way. The government's got its full eye on them now. They've given all the Persian Empire is going to go get these guys now. And um, they're trying to stay alive. They're on the far side of the Dead Sea, I think, for a while. What happens next is just fascinating. And there's too many names involved. But the, the long and short is that Jonathan ends up their leader. And Jonathan is not the hammer. Jonathan ends up being called, English doesn't carry it too well, uh, Jonathan the Cunning. Jonathan the Cunning, and why? Because without ever really needing to win a battle, he talks his way into ruling Jerusalem and all the surrounding areas. And the Romans give him full ethnic control so he doesn't even have to follow their laws, just send him taxes. 
He does all that with his mouth. I like this guy. I like this guy a lot. He dies poisoned at a meal, probably trying to make reconciliation or further the goods. His brother Simon does take over, and Simon also is not unwise. And you see a 30, 40-year generation golden age for the people where the sacrifices are reinstituted, the Feast of Atonement is brought in, they do another cleansing of it, and then Simon institutes a memorial of that, the waving of palm branches, in the spring of every year. Now follow me on this. We're going to come back to the story, but follow me. The waving of palm branches in the spring of every year as a memorial of the reholification of the entire year, the new year, happens at Passover. So the reason they got palm branches at Passover is because they're waving for the new year of the Hasmodean dynasty's reclamation of the temple. The Hasmodean dynasty, that's who we're talking about, the Maccabees. Matthias is from the Hasmodean family. Now, here's where it kind of gets ugly. After Simon and Jonathan have these amazing reigns where they're printing coins, they're minting their own coins. But unlike all the pagans around them, the king's face is not on the coin because there's no king. Jonathan and Simon are never quite called king. Instead, they put the temple on the coin and they call it a shekel. But Simon's grandson will start putting his face on the coin, and start calling himself king. His grandson will be so weak that an advisor from the Edomites, a a captain of sorts, comes along and as a young man, he helps him get some firm grasp on, on the kingdom and then he gets, this advisor gets Rome to put him in charge. His name is Herod, Herod Antipas, Herod the Great, the one who killed all those other babies. And around and around the circle goes, yes? But, So see this, though, that every year built into Second Temple intertestamental Judaism is that when you go to Passover, you wave palms because there were these guys who were priest, warrior, almost kings, who had everything back as it should be back to fulfill all the promises of the entire Old Testament minus two things, the Ark of the Covenant and the blood of a son of David on the throne. So when Jesus gets that colt and that donkey, huh? He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows what those palm branches mean. He's bringing the whole thing together in one great moment so that when they say, Hosanna, son of David, save us. Blessed is he who comes. Yeah, this is the one. This is the one. Philippians chapter 2, then, encourages us to be like him. And this is going to push us back at at the Matthew text, just to find Zechariah. So um, if, you, if you can, keep Philippians and Zechariah both in front of you. Um, but in the Matthew text, the, the part from Zechariah is verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble, mounted on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. In Zechariah, it's going to read a little differently. It's like this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Sing aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. That wasn't there in Matthew. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The reason why you will have differing quotations in the New Testament from an Old Testament text 
are, there's more than one. Sometimes the apostle just doesn't want to quote it all. They just quote part of it. They expect you to go look it up. Sometimes they're quoting the Septuagint. And when, well, usually they're quoting the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. So when we have a Hebrew translated to English Old Testament next to a Greek New Testament with Greek Old Testament translated to English, you'll get small variations. Again, the difference here being um, say to the daughter of Zion and regrace, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. You, you can hear that difference. Those things I think you don't need to worry about. If that's like, oh, is the Bible true? Don't even go there. That's so far from a problem for us that the, the, the apostles had no problem using the translation and quoting it. They believed in Pentecost like we do. They believed that by searching the scriptures, the spirit is going to be active. So what should we really look at, though? Well, this word righteous in Zechariah, in the original text, that's, the, that's justified, justifying. That's everything about what it means to be Lutheran, right? That we are justified by grace through faith. That's who this man is. And then mounted on that donkey and humble, humble again. Okay, so for Jesus to walk into Jerusalem with this massive crowd, expecting a warrior king like Judah Maccabeus. He doesn't have that. There's the palm fronds. He's got this donkey that's not going to protect him from nothing, but he knows he's dying anyway. He is, at this point now, is your moment to learn it, humble. He has owned his place. He knows who his authority is, and it's not these people. It's his father, and he walks as his father bids him do with that confidence we heard from the Isaiah text, knowing that it will come to pass. So humility is not taking a lower place than you deserve. Humility is knowing your place, which sometimes means taking a lower place than you deserve. And you would do that because you know your place as a Christian and have no problem giving something more than someone else more than they deserve. But what it doesn't mean is this nonsense where Christians refuse to acknowledge they've ever done a good deed. Oh, no, 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 it was just Jesus. No, it wasn't. That's not humble. That's rude. What is humble is to say, thank you, I was glad to do it. God be praised. Because you know you did it. And you're glad God made you do it. Because you know by yourself you wouldn't have. Yeah. So grace enables you to be humble without having to pretend you're something else than you are. It's more about figuring out what you really are, being grateful for it, and then when it calls you to suffer, when who you are requires that you take your place and you don't want it, do it anyway. And that's what he does. He doesn't want to ride that cold in to die. He's going to pray blood out of his face later, trying not to have it happen. But he knows what it means to follow. He knows what it means to have a father. Ah, oh, it's so powerful and beautiful. So then that mind is what... Paul wants us to have the mind that knows the place that we're in. And let me say this one more time again. None of you are in one place. All of you have many places you stand. Not everyone is your authority. You don't have to submit to the whole world. You're just supposed to submit to those people who are clearly over you according to God's creation. Generally, your faraway government that you can't do anything about, that counts. Your husband, that counts. Your parents, that counts. Your boss at work, that counts. The policeman, when he pulls you over, that counts. Subject yourself to these things. That's, that's the mind, you know, where you stand. Okay, now, let's look at it as Christians, though, because I, I kind of just did that as kind of a general common sense approach. 
For Christians then, the Philippians text has a little bit before it. It starts, let this mind be among yourselves, right? Have this mind among yourselves. This mind is what comes before. So if you have it open and look at verse 1 and following, I'm going to read from there. I'm reading in the King James at this point. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, that is, if you're Christians, verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. What does that mean? How would we be like-minded? Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. What does that mean? Verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ. Right. So what does Jesus figure out that nobody else knows? What does he learn? Oh, goodness. We're gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna I, I forgot where I wanted to go. Here we go. So we're gonna get it from the rest of Philippians here. So the mind of Christ learns to see others as more needful than self. As the reason you're here is to be good for others, and part of doing that is knowing who you actually are, not pretending to be something you're not, but know who you actually are, and then strive as you actually are to be under your king, Jesus Christ, who then as a model looks like what comes next, right? Who being in the form of God did not consider it, well, this is ESV here. I'm assuming this is NKGV here. I'm going to slow down because that will be confusing. It gets, this is a tough text. The Greek is not easy. So in your ESV, if you have that in the bulletin, it's he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. If you're in the NKJV, New King James, it's who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Those things don't sound alike, but they actually are. And and it kind of goes like this. It's poetry, and the Hebrew in Zechariah is weird. Sorry, I mentioned how hard it would be to string all this together. The word is arpagmon. The King James translated it as robbery. The ESV, that's where it gets the, the grasping language. The word means to profit, to profit. Okay, so I'm trying to drive home Jesus' mind. And Jesus' mind does not consider his being God so that he can profit from it. I know I got confusing right before I said it, but did that clear it up? He doesn't think of being God as being for his benefit. It's for yours. That's what it means to, again, not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Knowing he's God, he realized, oh, it's for everybody else's sake then. And Paul says, have that mind, Christian. See that way if you can, right? 
Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That means he became a man, right? So part of his taking a place, son of the father, involved taking a place, son of man, that he didn't have to take. But he did because knowing he was God, he knew it wasn't for him. And he could do this for you. And you see how beautiful this is? Being born in the likeness of man and then, verse 8, being found in human form. I'm going to try to wrap this up as fast as I can here, but I have to say this. So being found in human form, the King James, verse 8, will say it a bit differently. Being found in the appearance as a man. Over the next 25 years, I'd love us to have a conversation about which Bible translation we want to use in church. And I'd love us to get down to one. And I'll tell you the reason I don't want to use the ESV is because of this verse. I'll read it again. Being found in human form versus, I lost the place, but other it is, coming in the likeness of a man. Do you hear the difference? Do you hear how they removed man and woman from the text? This was in the like early 2000s. It's been coming a long time. And the ESV is very weak on man and woman. It hides our distinction. It hides it so much that it can't even admit Jesus is a man. Kind of weird if you think about it. Like, are you ladies really offended that Jesus is a man? Like, if we had the word man here, would you feel left out that he was found as a man? Right? But that's what they did to the Bible. That's how much the arguments from outside have influenced us. That's what I want you to attend your own scriptures for just so you know. So you can defend your own heart and mind against these things. I'm here to help. I am. I'm planning to open these things, not close them. But, okay, he's found as a man. And then he humbles himself beyond that, right? He knows his place. Obedient to the point of death, dying on that cross, as we'll spend the rest of the week thinking about, praying about. Therefore, God has exalted him. We're looking forward to this resurrection, the ascension. Bestowed on him the name that's above every name. I mean, it's so beautiful. The last day, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is king. And now you get to do it early. Now you're already singing that song, and now the angels see you. I've told this story, I think, once before. I hope to tell it often. I want you to imagine that the Holy Spirit of God, who has caused you to come and listen to me speak about these scriptures for a good long time now, 45 minutes, that Holy Spirit of God is inside of you by means of these things. Everything else you can get this week will be a gift from God to you, but not like this has been. This is God pouring himself into you as a breath to enliven your mind and your heart, your courage, and your body. He's going to stamp it with the flesh and blood of the risen man so there's no doubt. I want you to imagine then that rather than not seeing it, you see it. And when I lift up this food in a couple of minutes and I speak these words from Jesus, they shine with eternal glory, light streaming from every corner of it. And as I hand it to you, the light is swallowed and you can see it shine through as it goes down into and you begin to glow just a little bit all over. And you're going to go out this week and you're going to find suffering and trial, confusion and temptation. You're going to face it like a Christian. And every time you face that suffering like a Christian, you learn to hold your place, to hold your place, I say, to stand where you need to and be gentle and good. A little bit of that light bleeds out of you. But the good news is it leaves a puddle of light on the ground for the people you're talking to. You're all standing in the grace of Jesus because you brought the holiness there just by being you, by being a Christian. 
But then again, by the end of next week, right, you're going to be running out of that glow. This is why the Sabbath day, the third commandment, coming to church is so important. So you can get more of this promise, get more of this certainty. This is why I encourage you to pray the Psalms at home, to get into the Proverbs. If you miss church, definitely open the scriptures, yeah? It's not about earning your way. But the more that you can see, indeed, you're being filled with Jesus right now to go out and bleed him everywhere. And he's going to do it without you, for you, and then with you. Like he didn't need you, but he's going to take you. He's going to bring you along, shouting with the Hosannas all the way, to all the way to to Revelation chapter 7. And being that innumerable host on that final day, singing praises to the Lamb. All of that, one meal at a time. One encouragement at a time. And one Sunday at a time. And then for your week in your life, one day at a time. How would Jesus talk to you? That's how I started this all. Do you remember? How would Jesus talk to you? I am pretty confident I'm not the only person who has a a rough inner voice, a voice that, well, if I let anyone else talk to me the way I talk to me, I'd, I wouldn't. I'd yell at that person before I let them do to me what I do to myself. I don't think I'm alone in this. I've, always, I've wondered for a while what I could do about it. You know, the carnal flesh, the Bible talks about your carnal man. That's who you are on the inside, and you really are that vicious. That's who you really are. That's why you need Jesus. But one thing that's been pondering in my head again, it's been helpful, is when I catch myself with such things, I ask, how would Jesus have said that? You might remember the really lame, what would Jesus do from back in the 90s? It's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying the next time that you're in prayer or not in prayer and ought to be in prayer because you're angry instead, and you're angry at yourself and you're talking in your head, you're saying this, that, this, that, stop and ask, how would Jesus have said the same thing? And I can guarantee you it'll be like this, more gently more gently jesus entered on that donkey to show you he is gentle so if you want to take the humble word and put it with another word today take gentle one knows one's place so that one can act for the good of others and again here is this king who knows and is there to be the gentle king he died for you because he knows what a carnal jerk you are. So the next time you're on your own case, well, let him be on your case instead. Ask him to translate for you. How would Jesus be your God? As he is, more gently, more gently. Let us pray on these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.